0: We are entering into new territory, and I'm very excited about it. We are going to spend some time, four weeks probably, in the Old Testament. So grab a Bible if you have one in the pew in front of you. If you want to use your phone, you can do that too. The book that we're going to, you're not going to find because we never go to it. So you're going to need your phone or the, uh, the reference at the beginning that tells you which page it's on. But we're going to open to the book of Haggai. Have Has anyone here, to your knowledge, studied the book of Haggai? Me neither. Sweet. First time for all of us. This is great. Um, we have spent very, very little time in the Old Testament so far. Um, not on purpose, but we took like 100 years to get through Matthew, and that's all we had time for. But we're, we're going to dig into it. To Haggai. The crazy thing about this book is that it is very much situated in a particular time and a particular place in history It had a particular role for the people of God a long, long time ago. And it also has something to say to us today. I don't know if, I just want you to remember that, that God actually is here, present in the scripture, and wants to say something to us through this book that you maybe have never read before. it has something for us. It's more than backstory in the Old Testament. It's more than backstory to Jesus. It's more than history. It is every bit the word of God as Matthew is, or Ephesians, or 1 John, or something. Um, and my hope is that when we're done, not only would we receive what the Lord has for us from this book in particular, but maybe the minor prophets would be a little bit like demystified for you, because they're kind of that part of the Bible where you're like, don't know what I'm reading here, but I'm just going <laughs> to a way through it. So. First thing that we need to do is very quickly just zoom out. We can't just like pop in and start reading it. I mean, you can do that. It's fine. But if we zoom out a little bit and kind of situate ourselves in the story of the Bible up to this point, it will be really helpful. So that's probably not what you were hoping that we would do today is like talk about the history of the Old Testament, but we're going to do it. And maybe something will click for you that has not clicked before. Um, There's four things up there and I had to make the font really small so they could all fit on one page. Um, hopefully, you can read them. Um, four things. Those are like the four kind of plot points that we're going to focus on just in this like two-minute summary of the Old Testament. Um, so the first thing is that God established Israel as his people. There were a lot of other nations, but he picked Abraham's family. We call them Israel. Um, they were his people. He calls them his treasured possession. He singled them out. And he's like, you're my people. You're going to be the people that I kind of like, like my ambassadors to the world. So that's Israel. And the way God made this official, they like sealed it with a covenant. So that happened with Moses. Think back to like Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, the other parts that are a little bit hard to read through if you're trying to read through the Bible. That's what's happening In those books, God is setting them apart as his people. He's giving them a way of life, a covenant. And in that covenant, um, in Deuteronomy specifically, there's this moment where God tells the people, hey, if you do all this stuff that I'm asking you to do, I'm setting you apart as my people, here's what it looks like to be my people. If you do all this stuff, things are gonna go really well for you. There's gonna be blessing, there's gonna be abundance, there's gonna be safety. So he's talking about like their crops and their land and everything, it's just gonna go well. I'm gonna keep your enemies away from you, you're gonna be safe. So in your Bible, the section heading probably says something like blessings for obedience, which I can't think of a more like churchy phrase that's like not helpful, but the idea is there is abundance and blessing and safety inside of being faithful to the covenant that God made with them. However, If they step out of being faithful to the covenant, if they're like, we're not gonna do all the things that God tells us to do, God tells them, it's not gonna go well for you. There's gonna be a lot of bad things that are gonna happen. You're not gonna have blessing. Things are not gonna be abundant for you. The word that they use, which is just not great, is the word curses. So it's blessings for obedience and then curses for disobedience, not curse like in a Harry Potter thing, but just like the consequences are not good if they wander away, from the type of people that God was wanting them to be. Is that making sense so far? So he's got, you're my people, here's how I want you to be. If you be how I'm asking you to be, it's gonna go great, and if you decide not to, it's really not gonna go well. However, if they kind of fail and decide to not be faithful to the covenant, there's always like, a return ability, the return clause. Like if they repent with all their heart and want to come back to the Lord, he's like, you can, you can come back and I will restore the blessing um, and abundance to you. That right there, so number one, if you know that that's like a huge part of Israel's story, you'll probably understand like half of the prophets because they're usually in some way referring to that, to Israel's like, failure to do that or reminding them of some aspect that they're supposed to follow in God's law, whether it's doing justice to the you know, surrounding nations around them, being obedient to God. So the, the prophets deal a lot with that first thing. Uh, spoiler alert, the Bible is old so I can spoil it. Um, Israel is not faithful to their covenant. It does not go well, they fail. And a number of things happens. but I'm gonna focus on this thing. Uh, part of their failure is Israel demanded, um, that God would give them a king to rule over them. All the other nations around them had kings, but God was supposed to be their king for Israel. That was kind of part of the covenant. God was with them and he was ruling over them. He used the priests to kind of help mediate that relationship, but there was no ruler over God's people, it was God himself. But that's uncomfortable for them because all these other nations have a king. So they asked for a king. And God promises that actually a descendant of David would have a kingdom that would last forever. So God kind of meets them in their failure of asking for a king with like, okay, I'll give you a king and it's actually gonna last forever. It's gonna be culminating in Jesus. But what happens, I think it's David's grandsons or sons, um, the kingdom splits in two. So Israel in the north, it's really confusing because they're like kings and chronicles and a lot of the prophets. They'll talk about Israel and Jerusalem or Israel and Judah. They're still talking about all of God's people, but the kingdom split, Israel in the north, Judah and David's line in the south or in Jerusalem. Almost all of Israel's kings, so once they're split, the people in the north, I think all of them are just wicked, like totally, have completely abandoned the covenant, and only some, like a few of the kings in the south actually try to kind of bring Israel back to being faithful to the covenant. Israel in the north is conquered by Assyria. This is just a quick little history. Israel in the north, conquered by Assyria. Judah in the south is eventually conquered by Babylon and their temple is destroyed and they're taken into exile, into captivity. Babylon conquers Assyria and then Persia conquers Babylon. There's just an exchange of powers over this time, okay? Cyrus is the guy in charge of Persia when they defeat Babylon and he tells god's people who have been taken out of their land their temple is destroyed they've been taken into exile he's now in charge of them and he says he gives them permission he gives them this edict that they can return to jerusalem to rebuild their temple there are some kind of enemies of god's people and some other persian kings who kind of get in the way of that but they Um, they get it reaffirmed by our first kind of name here in Haggai, his name is King Darius, and he confirms that the people are in fact allowed to return to their land and go rebuild their temple. Are we following the story so far? Okay, Israel rebuilds the temple, eventually we're we're scooting past what's happening in in Haggai, um, they eventually rebuild the temple, but it's, it's not the same as it used to be. The first one was glorious and epic, and they begin to rebuild this other one, and it's just, it's not kind of meeting their expectations of what it was supposed to be like. So they're back in Jerusalem, but the temple is not what it was, and they are actually still very kind of broken and unfaithful to the covenant, even though they're back in their land. But God promises to restore the glory of the temple. He's like, I know it's not what you thought it would be, but someday I'm gonna make it fully right and his presence will return to it and he'll reestablish Israel's um, kingdom with this future king. So pretty much anytime you're reading one of the prophets, you know, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Haggai, all those names that you're like, don't know how to say I'm probably not gonna read them, they're probably referring to one of these four things or usually a combo of them. So if you kind of are able to internalize that story that there was a covenant, they failed. God said, actually, I'll restore you back if you repent. Um, And then the last one is this future day of the Lord where um, Israel's enemies would be conquered and um, their temple would be restored and like, the way that, like Ezekiel describes it is their hearts, the thing that was making them all along like fail to follow the covenant that he 'd actually fix their hearts um, that God would restore that, and so in the prophets, they call that the day of Yahweh or the day of the Lord so It can be confusing because sometimes they're talking about like the Israel's immediate enemy, like right there, it's Assyria or it's Babylon, but then interspersed in there, he's also talking about this future day of the Lord, and so it can be about this moment here with their current enemies and then also their future restoration or deliverance. And so that's just our very, very quick (laughs) um, prophetic background. All of the biblical prophets in some way are speaking to one or more of those contexts, Haggai, is speaking to pretty much all of them, or at least references all of them. A lot has happened to God's people leading up to our story. They're just now back in their land. They've started to rebuild the temple. Some people opposed them. They've been distracted. And things are just not going well for them. And Haggai represents a turning point for Israel. Um, It's a call to action. So we're going to look at the first verse of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. Sometimes we just hear names in the Bible and we're just instantly like, I'm out. (laughs) I don't know who they are. And it just instantly makes it not work for us. So King Darius, he's in charge of Persia. He confirmed, yes, Israel, you can go back to your land and rebuild the temple. Um, Yahweh, the Lord, when you see the Lord in capital letters, it's short for Yahweh, it's the name of God. Yahweh speaks through Haggai, Haggai is the prophet. And Haggai is speaking to two people, two very important people, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Um, when Judah was conquered by Babylon, this was probably like 70 something years before this, their reigning king from the line of David was a guy named Jehoiakim and Zerubbabel is one of his grandsons. So he, Zerubbabel, is kind of this like, the current leader, the would-be king in the line of David. They call him in the text a governor, not a king, because Israel's kingdom is in shambles and doesn't exist right now. They're under the reign and power of Persia. Joshua had direct lineage to Aaron, the high priest of Israel. So basically these are like the two most important people or they would be if Israel was like in the covenant and following the Lord. Um, They have the king and the priest and Haggai is the messenger on behalf of the Lord speaking to these guys but also to the people. So here's what the Lord says through Haggai to these two guys who kind of have power and authority in Israel. This is what the Lord Almighty says and then notice there's another quote. So now, the Lord is saying, these people, he's talking about Israel, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. So we get the backstory into like, why is God choosing now to speak through Haggai to the people? It's because there were people in Israel who were saying something. And what they were saying was, it wasn't time to rebuild the temple. The thing about this that's weird is that it definitely was time for them to rebuild the temple. They had permission from Cyrus way back in the day when Cyrus first conquered Babylon and told them, hey, you guys can go back to your homeland and rebuild the temple. They had permission. Um, They were given, uh, this permission was confirmed by King Darius. They were given resources to make it happen. But two things happened that stalled them in the process. Um, this backstory comes from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So if for some reason I'm talking, you're like, wow, I just can't get enough of this history. Then you could go read those books. Um, there was some opposition. Some people had moved in to kind of the surrounding area of Jerusalem. So when God's people, Israel, moved back and they're starting to rebuild, they're, they're getting stopped by some local enemies. They were um, bribing officials kind of trying to stop them from doing the work of rebuilding the temple. It'd be like if someone was um, starting a restaurant like downtown Salem and the other like restaurant owners didn't want the competition and so they're like sabotaging their efforts to get permits and bribing inspectors and stuff. Eventually they keep rebuilding but another thing happened. They lay the foundation of the temple so you can read about this in Ezra, and then we kind of have another little like window into the same scene in in Haggai here. Um, they're laying the foundation of the temple, and they, some people just think it's epic. So they're throwing this party because they've laid these huge like huge stones to lay the foundation of the temple, and people are just like crying out. It's celebration. There's trumpets. You can like hear the party noise, but because this was like uh, sixty or seventy years ago. Um, there are some people there who saw the old temple before it was destroyed. And so they're looking at this new thing and they're like, this is not what I thought it was gonna be, this is not the same. And so there's like some people partying and then these older priests and kind of heads of the families are just like weeping and wailing because this temple is supposed to be like everything to them, is not really looking like they um, remember it. So the people, because of all this, I think, because of all this, all that's happened, all that's stalled them, kind of being disenchanted with it, not being what they thought it was gonna be, they're just thinking, I guess it's just not time to rebuild the temple. Maybe maybe we're not supposed to do this right now. It's not going great. People are trying to stop us. What we've done so far isn't even that great. So they stop. Look at verse three. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin. So God, through Haggai, responds to them saying, hey, it's just not time for us to rebuild the temple. And he's kind of asking a rhetorical question. Okay, so it's time to build your own houses then with fancy paneling while our temple is in ruins. So they were taking time and resources to build their own houses. They were neglecting the, their role of rebuilding the temple. It's this, I think it's an intentional kind of thematic inverse of a moment that we, I referenced earlier in our Old Testament survey um, with King David. So this is in 2 Samuel 7, if you wanna take a note and go look at it later. Um, David had built this epic palace for himself. It's just beautiful and luxurious and he's sitting in it and he has this moment um, where he's like, how is it that I'm sitting in this beautiful palace and the presence of God, he calls it the Ark of God, which is where the presence of God was, and how is it that I'm here and God is just in a tent? So Israel's um, system, they didn't have a temple when they were wandering through the desert just after Exodus, they had this elaborate kind of tent system that we call the tabernacle, um, but that's kind of where God's presence was. And so David's like, how could I be in this like, wonderful palace while God's just like in a tent. And so he wants to build a temple to build a house for the Lord. Now David, his priorities were to build, maybe he had some mixed motivations. It ends up being Solomon that builds the temple, not David. But in that, in that moment where David's like, Lord, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build you a temple, um, God says, actually, you're not gonna build a house for me. I'm gonna build a house for you. And that's where we get the promise that Jesus, or a king would come from the line of David and rule uh, God's people forever, culminating in King Jesus. Israel, at this time of Haggai, has flipped that around. They've been delivered from exile, allowed to return home, given permission and resources to restore the temple. And they're like renovating their kitchen. (laughs) They're putting up some trendy beadboard paneling on their walls and some new tile. So God continues speaking to them through Haggai in verses five and six. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So God gives them this kind of first moment like, look around at what's happening in your world and do the math. And what was happening was that they were experiencing uh, the consequences for being unfaithful to the covenant. So think back to that first item that we had on that deal. They had abandoned him and they were experiencing the consequences. Some of the lines in this kind of next section of Haggai are taken right out of Deuteronomy in those lists where he's saying, hey, if you, if you abandon me, here's all these things that are gonna happen. The language is straight out of the covenant language from Deuteronomy. They were experiencing the consequences of covenant unfaithfulness, laboring, not harvesting. They had some food and water, but they were still hungry and thirsty. Their money was not going very far in meeting their needs. And so, he tells them, think about it. Look around and see what's happening. And he tells them that again in verse seven. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their due and the earth its crops. This is like straight out of Deuteronomy, the language about consequences for um, being unfaithful to the covenant. The heavens have withheld their due, the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. So this is like the kind of climax of this first section. It's the call to change and do something. He repeats that line, think about this, like look around at your life and what's happening. And then once you've done that, go up into the mountain and cut down some trees so that you can begin building the temple. There's a few lines in here um, and some later on that we are going to go over um, probably in two weeks. Um, First thing he says, you expected much, but it turned out to be little. This is likely him referencing that generation of Israelites who saw the old temple and then were seeing the new one being built and they're like, this is not what I remember it being. Um, We'll deal with that one in a little bit, kind of dealing with their their expectations not matching reality. Um, But the other thing is that God had allowed hardship to fall on them because they were not being faithful to the covenant. And that's kind of offensive to our modern sensibilities to think about a God who would do that. And so that's what we're, I think in two weeks, gonna have a whole sermon kind of dedicated to that concept. So if you're like, why aren't you talking about it now? I will, just not right now. Last few verses. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people, So the two important guys and everybody else obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people, they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. It's kind of, a, at least for now, a happy ending. Like, the the prophet's message worked. They respond and they obey. It's beautiful. Led by their king and their priest, in response to the words of God through this prophet, they begin to continue to rebuild the temple. It says God stirred up the spirit of all the people. They feared the Lord and they wanted to obey. That's the end of chapter one. Congrats, we made it through one chapter. Here's a quick summary. God's people had permission and the resources to rebuild the temple, but they weren't doing it. Because of this, life was not going great for them. So God speaks through Haggai, tells them to think carefully and examine their lives, and calls them to not focus on their own houses, but on rebuilding God's house, the temple. They hear God, they respond and obey. I think that in interpreting, not just like reading the words that are here and like following the story, but interpreting the Old Testament, especially a book like this, is really, really difficult. Um, Psalms and Proverbs are maybe a little more kinda of straightforward when we just kinda of wanna read them It's some prayer time in the morning. Again, reading the Old Testament for its story and just trying to understand what's there, that's, a, that's not too bad reading the Old Testament to kind of discern what, who is God and what is he like, what's his character like, that's doable. But finding meaning for today, like, like you have things going on in your world and in your life and God's word is supposed to be a lifeline for you, you're like finding, finding that here or in the books around it is really hard. And so I wanna tell you first, if, you're like, if you've never read them, for that very reason, because you're like, I don't know what I'm reading, and it's not helpful for my life. I get it, but I want to show you that there is something here, um, and all throughout the Scripture, reading the Old Testament as God's Word, living and active, sharper than any sword, it's able to like pierce through like thousands of years of cultural difference. Um, it's difficult, but it's beautiful. It just takes uh, a little bit more work. Um, I don't know why or how it happened, but I became over the years really sensitive to like, I'll call it like like fast and loose Old Testament interpretation where it's like, here's 10 leadership principles from the life of Moses or like uh, you can beat Goliath too, that that sort of thing. Um, So sometimes I hear Old Testament scriptures and I'm like the application for them and I kind of cringe a little bit. I'm like, I don't know if that's what we're supposed to kind of pull from this. And so I don't have like a formula to never do that or to like do it wrong. Um, all I can do is just tread carefully with what I think the Lord might wanna say to us about our lives today from this very, very old book. And there are three lines that um, should give, give, um, give us pause, make us think, um, and there are these three lines. Give careful thought to your ways. And then the line, while each of you is busy with your own house. And then the call to action, go up into the mountains, bring down the timber, and build my house. So what I think that the Spirit of God would do in us, because he did the same thing with God's people then, and I think he wants to do it in us now, is to examine our lives, to do some thinking, and see if, using the language of Haggai, to see if we are busy with our own house and neglecting the temple. So that's the first question to think about. Are you busy building your own house and neglecting the temple? And in order to figure out how we apply this, we need to talk about the temple. What is the temple? So we've done our kind of what's in the text, and now we're gonna kind of do the harder work of figuring out how is this gonna apply to us. And so we have to kind of jump out of the ancient and make it a little bit modern for us. Um, Your job today is obviously not to build a Jewish temple. I don't know if you came in here thinking that maybe you're supposed to or not, but you definitely don't need to. Nor does temple then equal for us church now. This passage does not mean that you should come to church more or serve at the church more or save money for some church building campaign or or take better care of this church building. I bet that some church somewhere has used this verse to do that, like stop focusing on your house and let's build God's house, that, that sort of thing. We're not doing that. I don't think that the church is our equivalent to Israel and their temple. So let me just kind of step back and think about what the temple was conceptually for them, for Israel. The temple was the physical setting and also like the, the structure, like the all-encompassing structure through which they facilitated a relationship with God. And it was the physical location of God's presence. But it represented kind of how they had a relationship with God. It was the setting and the structure. It's where the magic happened, so to speak. To borrow the language of Hamilton, it's the room where it happened. So if someone in Israel asked the question like, where, when, and how can I, as a person in Israel, or we as Israel as a whole, Like how are we gonna maintain a relationship with God? The temple was the crux of that whole process. It was the setting and the structure. It was where they would carry out sacrifices, where the priests would do it on their behalf, where they would bring their offerings, where they would worship. It's where the priests would do the work on behalf of Israel to maintain their collective, healthy, proper covenant relationship with God. Without the tabernacle or eventually the temple, they couldn't have relationship with Yahweh. So. That's, it was the setting and the structure. And so in Haggai, Israel has returned from exile. They've got permission to rebuild this temple. They've got the resources, and they're like, eh, I kind of focused on my own thing right now, my house, trying to get that promotion at work. We've got, we got a remodel going on, so we're a little bit busy. They have the chance to put back in place the structure and the setting for their relationship with God to be put back right. And they're just not doing it, until God speaks through Haggai, and then they get it together and they make it happen. But for us, the setting and the structure for maintaining and developing our relationship with God is not a building, it's not the temple, there's no priesthood, sacrifices. I think it's our schedule. It's our habits and our rhythms. We don't require the temple or priests or sacrifices for access to the presence of God. Jesus is our priest and our once for all sacrifice and the means by which we have constant 24-hour access to the presence of God who now, for those in Christ, He dwells in us. We are the physical location of the presence of God and there are no barriers between us and experiencing relationship with Him except us. Our schedule our busy lives, maybe our apathy, or our lack of structure and rhythms and habits. To use just thoroughly Christian language, your temple is whatever rhythms you may or may not have in place, what we call like spiritual disciplines or practices. Our schedule, our rhythms, our habits, that is our setting and our structure for relationship with God. We have access to the Spirit of God in us but we need a plan. We need routine and rhythm to experience that to facilitate awareness of God in our life, dependence on him, and flourishing in our relationship with him. And it does not happen by accident. It requires some building. This is a weird analogy, but imagine your house is sitting on top of a wellspring, just like the best a most amazing natural source of water. It like heals you if you drink it and cleanses you if it touches your skin. It's just right under your house. There's a pump already installed bringing the water up. It's plumbed and connected to the water system in your house. So you have this water. It's just like flowing throughout your house. It's in the walls. Imagine that. You've got the clearest, best flowing water in your house, but you have no fixtures, No faucet, no way to access the water. It's in the walls of your home, but no way to open a tap to drink or to cleanse or wash yourself. I'm sure the analogy will break down at some point, but just follow me. We have the spirit of God in us, the water of life flowing through these bodies. But to drink from it does require our participation. It involves some intentionality. And so to not create some structure and some rhythms for being with Jesus and cultivating your relationship with Him is like having uh, this water flowing through your house and having no access to it. And so what we wanna do is install some faucets to be able to drink. So first thing is please don't hear me implying that um, our relationship with God is built on our efforts or our merit. The only reason we have relationship with God and the only reason the Spirit of God dwells inside of us is by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not a work done by us. To go back to the analogy of the well under the house, uh, we didn't put the well there and we didn't create access to it, we didn't have to dig it out, we didn't pay for it. It's simply faith and trust and allegiance in Jesus that gives us access but it does require us to participate from that point, to experience it. Um, Saint Augustine said, without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. So without the work of Jesus, none of this is possible, but there's an element of required active participation to experience now in your life, the abundant life that Jesus offers. Dallas Willard says similarly, um, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. So, maybe this is obscure, and maybe whenever I am face-to-face with Jesus, he'll be like, you botched that first chapter of Haggai. I don't know. But I kind of think that this is what, how we today should respond to what we're reading in this first chapter of Haggai. We're being called to build a temple. And I think for us, that is a structure of life habits and rhythms and spiritual practices that cultivate good, healthy relationship with Jesus and awareness of the fact that the spirit of God dwells in us. God told Israel, you've got permission to build the temple to create the space for me to dwell and to resume our covenant relationship and he's telling us the same exact thing. We have access to the spirit of God and it may be time to build some structure and some rhythms to experience how good God is. And the main thing that gets in the way of this, we are almost done, is just being busy building our own house. It's not your sin. Jesus has paid for it and cleansed us from all unrighteousness. It's not like the temple where only the priest can go into the holy place where God's presence was. We have free and clear access now. The only thing that gets in the way, using the language of Haggai, is being busy building our own house. Now this may or may not be literally building your own house. We've been in like a never-ending season of having some project happening in our house for a while and it is a huge distraction. But the idea is just being too busy tending to all the things um, of life at the expense of your life with Jesus. This is when we let our jobs, our hobbies, our culture of constant distraction and noise and social media just consume our time. Maybe a desire to get ahead at work, to make progress in some area of your life. It could be so many things, and the hard part is that many of those things that distract us in and of themselves are good things, are fine things, working towards your health, physical or mental health, or working hard in your job, having hobbies and finding ways to have fun. Those are all good things. You should do them. But if you look at your life, if you do what God says and examine your ways, think carefully on your life, and you have structures and rhythms for all those other things, but not for cultivating a relationship with Jesus, I think God would say, go up into the mountain and cut down some trees and start building. Create some structure to cultivate your relationship with God. So the question is this, again, are you focused so much on building your house that you've neglected creating some structure and rhythm for your life with Jesus? Now, I'm pretty sure the answer for all of us, to some extent, is yes. So we can all just kind of breathe like is someone else like not struggling with this? Everyone is. It's OK. There's room for improvement. My intention is not at all to lay on a guilt trip. No one should leave here feeling guilt or shame or like a failure. The goal would be that you leave maybe feeling a little bit empowered and excited, thinking like I have the water of life flowing in this house and I just need to access it and make uh, some rhythms for accessing it. So yeah, no guilt and shame. Maybe you're interested You feel like you've got some room to grow, but you don't know what to do. Um, So I'll give you one tool, there's many tools. Um, I don't know of a better one than this for me personally, but I bet there are many, many that exist. But this one is my favorite, it's called Practicing the Way. It's both a book by an author named John Mark Comer, and it's also now this like, I don't know a better word than curriculum, but that makes, you probably are like, not gonna do it now that I said curriculum. Um, They call it a pathway to becoming like Jesus um, and being a disciple. So they kind of have a plan together, compiled resources for churches and small groups to build some structure and purpose into their lives for how a person can cultivate a healthy relationship with Jesus. It's a really good option if you're like, I wanna try something, I'm ready for some structure, I don't know what to do, just start there, it's great. Um, There are probably other options, again, you can go find them. Um, but I like this one. And I know exactly what it's like to live my life each day, just kind of each day comes and goes, and I just forget to cultivate my relationship with Jesus. Theoretically, I could be paid to do Jesus-y stuff during my work week. Like I could sit down and read my Bible and pray and do all the things that you want to find time in your schedule to do, I could do them during a work week. I'm a pastor and I regularly, cyclically get busy building my own life, letting my attention and my priorities get sucked into anything and everything but cultivating my relationship with Jesus. So if you're feeling like, yeah, I need, I need to make some changes. Um, when I say I'm with you, I really, really mean it. I'm with you. I desperately need and want to rebuild the temple, so to speak, to continually create and then recreate when I fall out of it and rebuild the setting and the structure uh, in my life to facilitate a thriving relationship with Jesus. And I know you probably feel the same sometimes. Like your days and your weeks and your months and years are just kind of slipping on and your relationship with God feels like where it was a long time ago or maybe it feels like it's gotten worse than it was from a long time ago. I know what that's like, but there's hope. You have permission to rebuild the temple and all the resources that you need. You're being invited to be disciples of Jesus, children of God, and filled with the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to take a stab at it again to build some structure into my life to experience healthy, thriving relationship with Jesus. I'm gonna do Practicing the Way with my community. We're gonna re- at least read the book together. Um, I'm gonna to recommend it. I have to our other communities at some point this year. Maybe, maybe dive back into it. Um, it probably won't go great if you feel like anyone's making you do it or kind of twisting your arm. But if you're interested, Practicing the Way is a great option. Um, the last thing that I'm gonna close with um, however this is hitting you, if you're feeling like, I know you said don't feel guilty, but I super do, or whatever, you're feeling disappointed, I wanna end with something that we just kinda glossed over. It's verse 13 of this chapter. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people before they started rebuilding, before they obeyed, probably precisely when they felt like they were just in the throes of their consequences for being unfaithful. Nothing was going right. He calls them to change, and he says in verse 13, I am with you, declares the Lord. After calling them to respond, he tells them, I'm with you. Even when it seems like I wasn't, when all the stuff in life was not going well, he says, I'm with you. He, is, he was not then, and he is not now, standing with his arms crossed, saying, like, get your crap together, and then maybe you can come back. His hand is extended, his heart warm desire. His desire is to be close with you and he's inviting you into relationship that does require a little bit of effort, some structure, some rhythm, some habits. But it's not just for the sake of like being a disciplined, structured person. It's for the sake of being with God. He wants to be with you and with me. So let's pray. Now we, just, we say thank you for extending the hand to us to be with us, for making a way for us to be with you. And we hear um, the call that you gave to your people so long ago through Haggai, inviting them back to put in some work to experience good relationship with you. And we hear that call now that you're inviting us to take some steps so that we can experience good relationship with you. And we acknowledge that the work, the real work has been done by Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection, that you have filled us with the Spirit and empowered us to actually do this. It's not on our own strength, but actually yours in us. So I just asked Lord, that you would um, just give some encouragement to us, to those of us in this room who feel like we've missed you and missed out on having a life that is kind of built around you, would you help us, not from a place of of shame, but from a place of excitement, begin to rebuild our relationship with you? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.